Thank you for joining us for the Lafayette Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Please join us each week as we listen to lessons given on Sunday mornings at the Lafayette Church of Christ. And good morning, church. I just had one of my favorite uh, ever scripture reading moments. Uh, Charles read the first verse of that passage, which I'll remind you, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail. And I was watching everybody's eyes do this, and then someone turned around and was like, you're going to preach, you know, you're going to preach that? So, uh, so yes, we are. Uh, thankful you just have to, be thankful you just have to listen and, and not talk uh, during this. So we are going to get there, and uh, it, is, it is a pretty intense passage, uh, but we'll, we'll be all right. Um, I, I do want to welcome everybody to, to Lafayette. It's, it's good to see everybody. Uh, some of you are here for the very first time ever, and, and if that's uh, the, the case for you, then you are our welcome guests, and, and uh, I, w- I want to uh, just welcome you here as, as our family. It's, it's good to be with uh, God's people in the house of the Lord this morning. Um, again, I, I do want to jump right into the sermon uh, because I, from, from the book of James, because we have quite a bit to, to wade through, and I want to start by, by telling you a little bit about how I approach a passage from, from James. Uh, so before I go and consult the smart people uh, in the books that say this is what this actually means, what I, I try to do is, is uh, wade through the text a little bit and try to determine uh, two things, whether the different topics that James uh, is talking about in a particular passage, whether those topics are connected in some way, that, that's one option, is this one uh, idea that he's running through a few different topics, or is he talking about several different topics altogether? And when we're reading wisdom literature, like James is, either one of those can be the case. So sometimes, uh, as I'll argue today, we have one topic maybe that is run through a few different lenses, or sometimes James is just saying, oh, let me talk about this for two verses, let me talk about this for three verses, let me talk about this for, for one verse. So when I start, start to read a passage from James, that's one of the questions I'm, I'm asking myself. So back in chapter one, which I know was a while ago, uh, I presented, uh, I think, chapter, uh, chapter one, verses two to 17 or something like that. This is what I, what I argued, that although there are, are three different teachings in that passage on trials and wealth and temptations, that all three of those different teachings are, are meant to be connected because trials and wealth and temptations come and go, James says, like the waves of the sea, or like a withering plant, or like afternoon shadows, but the Lord our God, the Father of lights, never changes. Our God does not change in contrast to all of those those other things. So that's one way that we can read a passage from from James and say, okay, he's hitting on these different topics, but what is is his main uh, idea? So like that passage back in chapter 1, this passage from chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, seems to cover three or four different topics. You probably noticed that as as Charles read. He seems to be talking about wealth for a few verses. Then he talks about patience. Then he talks about grumbling. And then he talks about simple speech. And those are just a few topics that I know no one in this room struggles with. (laughs) So here's the interpretive question for us. Are these four different teachings that are completely separate, and James is giving us four different sermonettes, or are these four different teachings somehow all tied together? And the more I studied this, I concluded kind of like what I was thinking was going on back in in chapter one, 
I concluded that there is indeed a common thread and it's not directly any of those four things. It's actually Jesus Christ's second coming and the accompanying judgment. So this sermon gets even more exciting. <laughs> you, were, you thought it was about wealth and patience. It's actually about Christ's second coming and his judgment. If you notice, James rooted every single one of those four topics that he wades through. He roots every single one of those in his belief that Jesus Christ, his earthly brother, will come back one day. And he seems to strongly believe, as the Apostles' Creed will later summarize, that Christ will indeed come again to judge the living and the dead. And he seems to think that Jesus will actually come back and do that sooner than later, which adds a sense of urgency that we sense as he discusses each of these four topics. So I want to show you a bunch of these references so, so you don't think I'm completely making this up. Uh, notice how often in just these 12 verses that he alludes to Jesus's second coming and, and then the judgment that, that uh, all humans experience at that time. Uh, in the section on wealth, he, re he makes three references. He, he references the misery that is coming upon uh, the rich people he's talking to, and he says that their silver and gold will testify against you, and he accuses them of hoarding their wealth in the last days. So in six verses, three references to the second coming. And in his teachings on patience, he asks them to be patient until the Lord's coming, and he encourages them, he's actually saying this in a positive way, he encourages them that the Lord's coming is near. And he concludes his one-verse teaching on grumbling like this. This is perhaps my favorite. <laughs> the judge is standing at the door. And he concludes his other one-verse teaching on simple speech like this. You may have noticed how the scripture reading ended. Otherwise, you will be condemned. So yes, he's providing teaching in these four different areas, but I think what he's really trying to do is, is convict these churches that they need to be living their lives in the present day based upon an assurance of Christ's second coming, that the future dictates how they should live in the present. Now, I'm going to go ahead and note, since we're going to be spending some time with the second coming, I'm going to go ahead and note that the second coming of Christ is actually supposed to be good news for followers of Jesus. We have all sinned and in, in one sense deserve to be harshly judged. Absolutely, yes. But if we are in Christ, then God, who is the judge, is also our defender and our advocate. And so most of the time that the New Testament speaks about final judgment, it's either bad news for those outside of Christ, or it's, it's actually good news. It's, it's a good event that the Christians look forward to. It's good news for Christians that Jesus is coming soon. God's judgment is not inherently positive or negative. God's judgment is righteous, and God's judgment is holy. And so if in Christ, we who are in Christ become the righteousness of God, which we're told we do become that in 2 Corinthians, if that's the case, then God's or Christ's second coming and his judgment is good news for those of us in Christ because we are covered in his righteousness and Christ's judgment is righteous and holy. And all of that makes James somewhat the exception to the rule. He was given, I think I have judgment all figured out in the New Testament. And then James, as he often does, he kind of breaks down a, 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 lot, of the, 
lot of the ease with which I, I want to interpret the New Testament because he, he operates as the exception to the rule here. He's going to flip-flop back and forth, I think talking to a group of Christians. And at times, the second coming of Jesus, he's saying that that's good news, and he's saying the Lord's coming is near, be encouraged. And then other times, he's actually doing it as sort of a, a hellfire brimstone threatening way. And that's not really how Jesus or Paul tended to process the judgment. They, they tended to say, if you're in Christ, it's all good. It's good news. If you're outside of Christ, it's not all good. It's bad news. But James kind of seems to be flip-flopping here within the same 12 verses. And so one thing that you'll, you'll see commentators wonder is if James is addressing different groups in this passage. So they say maybe when he's addressing the rich people in the first six verses, he's not actually talking about rich Christians, which would be nice because then maybe he's not, he's does not addressing any of us this morning. And they say, well, in the first six verses, he never says brothers and sisters. So he actually has in mind these rich people out in society, which as a side note, if he's saying these things about rich people out in society, then I don't even want to know what he would say about rich people in the church. But that, that's one thing people say. The problem with that is when we look at verses 9 and 12, he very clearly has his brothers and sisters in mind, and he still references judgment in, in more of the traditional hellfire and brimstone threat. And so I'm not, I'm not picking on James. I'm just saying he's a little out of step with how most of the other New Testament writers uh, speak about judgment. He does seem, in my understanding, he does seem to be talking to different churches, different groups of Christians, and he is infused with this conviction that Christ will come again and that Christ will judge the living and the dead. And yet, in some ways, he sees that as, as very, very good news that they should rejoice in and that they should eagerly anticipate, and, and we'll see how he sees it otherwise um, as well. So that's kind of how I wanted to, to set up this passage. I think James is saying in these last days, this is how followers of Jesus should live then and, and now. So it's an uncomfortable passage to read, as we saw with, with Charles, although you did a great job uh, convicting us, uh, uh, us rich people. Uh, it's an uncomfortable passage to read, to interpret, to preach. It's probably the most uncomfortable passage to actually apply but I think it's really important that we hear James out and that we try to listen well to what he's saying. What we're going to do is work through these four areas of teaching fairly quickly. Uh, that we'll spend a little bit more time on the first one, and then we'll zoom back out and, and return to, to the second coming. We'll return to Jesus returning. So let's read uh, in, in verse uh, 1 through verse 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. I hope everybody is awake this morning by, by now. Look, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. And I'm going to pause here and insert a note that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach what I had prepared, but I would really encourage you to connect much of what I will say to much of what Dale was saying uh, during his offering talk, which was, was wonderful, Dale. And I think him emphasizing the generosity, whereas we're emphasizing our struggles with wealth will be really, really helpful. So I'm, I'm doing anything I say and what Dale says is, is being in conjunction with one another. Uh, let's keep going. The cries of the harvesters, Going back to Leviticus, the cries of the harvesters 
have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So let me first say that again, this teaching of James is really not all that unique to James. James is echoing several of the teachings of his brother Jesus, and both James and Jesus are in line with the long tradition of Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament who pretty regularly condemned the people of God for the ways they both hoarded their own wealth and the way that they had essentially stolen wealth from from the poor in their midst. And then let me note a few things in the text. Um, I'm going to try to say things that I think are very specifically in there. And then I have a few conclusions that I'm drawing from the text that I, I think are still arising from there. But I'm, I'm really trying to stay out of the way this, this morning, at least in this section, because I think James speaks for himself. <laughs> so I, I don't want to overly apply this in my life or your life. I just want you to listen to James and do that work for yourself. Uh, first off, James says, that the wealth and the clothes and the gold and silver that these rich people have accumulated will eventually rot and corrode, that these things are not permanent, that they will go away. But then here's the interesting part. The imagery he uses very powerfully implies that they themselves will also rot and corrode right along with the various forms of wealth that they have hoarded. So the wealth itself can be corroded and is impermanent and goes away. But he's also implying that, that the wealth also has a corrosive effect on the wealthy. Now, this illusion won't land with everybody. But this week, I kept thinking of the dragon smog from The Hobbit. If you're a Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit person, this is actually how dragons are typically presented in any type of fantasy literature. So think of dragons in general but some of you don't think about dragons at all. So it doesn't, still it's not gonna work with everybody. I think about dragons a lot. Uh, and dragons are like the case study. I thought about making this a dragon thing. Don't ask where my mind goes. Uh, but the dragon smog is sitting on this huge pile of treasure and he's actually not even doing anything with it. He, he, has, he has no use for it. He doesn't spend it. He's just hoarding and hoarding and hoarding this, this treasure. And there's a few other connections. The fact that he was not the rightful owner of that treasure is going to come up in just a second. But also, this is actually all, all free this morning. I wasn't really planning on saying this. But the other thing we see is that the dragon smog, and again, all dragons in this literature, they tend to be driven crazy by the amount of wealth that they have accumulated. That wealth has a corrosive effect on their souls. It breaks down their souls. They can't just have the wealth and be detached from it. It has an ongoing corroding effect on their lives. In verse 4, moving on from dragons, James says that they have not only hoarded wealth, but he questions how they have obtained their wealth in the first place. And this goes back to Dale's uh, message. They didn't pay their workers adequate wages. The wages they didn't pay are crying out against, uh, against the wealthy. And he says the workers themselves are crying out and testifying against the wealthy. And I love this verse. This is a little snippet of good news in here. James says, those cries have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. That God hears the cries of the poor, that he hears uh, the cries from these wages that had been stolen 
from the poor uh, in, in that community. In verse 5, he said they spent their time on earth living in luxury and self-indulgence. And in verse 6, it's, it's difficult to translate, but uh, without getting into it too much, the, the idea is that their self-indulgent wealth amounts to the condemnation and murder of the innocent poor in their community, that these poor innocent people have done nothing wrong, and yet the actions the wealthy are, are taking against them amount to murder. Now, again, I think everything I just said, except the dragon part, uh, is immediately in the text. So if you don't like it, your problem is not with me. I, I, and I really want to be clear on that this morning. If you don't like anything I just said, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with the New Testament. And I think that's something we need to sit with and, and maybe sit under as we listen to James. But here are a few of the conclusions that I draw as I sort of put these teachings in my own word and, and draw out uh, some of these Number one, our, our wealth itself is temporary. I think James calls that out at the beginning of this passage. Our wealth is going to go away. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But our relationship to our wealth has eternal implications. You guys get what I'm saying with that? Our wealth doesn't matter, but how we handle our wealth matters. Number two, the relative amount of our wealth matters. Now, that's an uncomfortable one to get into, but you can see James here just being disgusted by how much whoever he's writing to, they've just sat on these huge piles of wealth. And, and I think the amount uh, here matters to him. Number three is very clear how we obtain our wealth matters. Number four, who or whether we share, so who we share our wealth with or hoard our wealth from matters. So this gets back to Dale's also a little bit. The call here is obviously not to hoard our wealth. It's if we have wealth to, to share it. And, I, and I, I, I see James very clearly differentiating between hoarding our wealth and, and being generous, as, as Dale would say, with, with our wealth. And number five, this is sort of a blanket summary. If our wealth prevents us from loving God or our neighbors, it is sin. In fact, that's actually idolatry. If our wealth pre prevents us from loving God and our neighbors, at that point, it, it is idolatry and it is sin. And of all these, that, that first con conclusion, and then we'll move on, and you guys will all be excited. Uh, the, the, the first conclusion may be the most important to note in, in the context of this passage, because again, uh, James, I, I think, is especially trying to root all of these present tense areas of their lives in the reality of Christ's second coming. So what he does here with this first conclusion, what he does when he says, well, this is how you should live in the present because Christ is going to judge. That's what's going on in this, this whole passage. So I think that's one of the, the trains of thought I really want you to, to pay attention to. He's saying, you will give an account for your wealth. And now we can move on to the easier topic of patience. Verse seven, that was a joke, you can laugh. Uh, verse seven, be patient then brothers and sisters until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm. And then we'll drop to verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance. And have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. 
So in context here, you can probably see that, that the patience James is asking us to demonstrate isn't actually quite the same thing as, as just being patient with people who annoy us. Uh, being patient with people who annoy us is, is, is a good thing. Uh, it's a form of patience. It's a Christian virtue. But the meaning of patience in this passage is, is much more like the meaning of long-suffering or of perseverance. James is writing to Christians who have experienced and are presently experiencing suffering, and he encourages them not to just be patient with annoying people, but he, he encourages, them, encourages them to be patient and to stand firm and, and to wait and to persevere until the Lord's coming in the midst of their suffering. So ironically, this, this teaching on patience, which otherwise we'd say, oh, none of us are patient, we're going to struggle with this. This is actually good news. James is passing on these words, trying to encourage the people of God and say, I know, I know you're going through some hard times. And, and we know historically, even from James's work in the Jerusalem church, that that community had struggles. And James is eventually going to be martyred. And he and his people experienced some really hard issues in their lives, some really hard challenges. And yet he's looking forward with encouragement until the Lord's coming when he will come and, and redeem the suffering that they're experiencing. So he points to the prophets, and he points to Job, who, who all faced tremendous difficulties, and yet they remained hopeless and, or not hopeless, sorry, hopeful and blameless until God finally acted on their behalf. And he's challenging the people, like Job and the prophets, to remain hopeful, to remain blameless in their own suffering, uh, because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, and he will also act on, on their behalf. So again, in this context, Christ's second coming is, is fundamentally good news, and he's trying to encourage the people with, with that reality. Now, uh, as we move to our, our third topic of grumbling, it's actually right here in, in the middle of, of uh, James's treatment of, of patience. So it's probably not supposed to be its, its own topic, but one of, this is one of the parts where James was just confusing me a little bit, uh, because James is encouraging the people with Christ's second coming as he teaches them about patience, but then he reverts back to threatening the people <laughs> uh, with Christ's second judgment or second coming and judgment when he is writing about grumbling. So I wanted to separate those two out, even if they're supposed to be connected. So we read this in verse nine, uh, just only in verse nine. Don't grumble against one another, simple enough. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. And then he reminds them, the judge is standing at the door. Now, James's very Jewish audience would immediately associate this caution uh, of, of grumbling with the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness who very regularly grumbled uh, against God and grumbled against the, the human leaders and grumbled against one another. And as some of those Israelites learned, God does take rampant and incessant grumbling seriously. Uh, he gets tired of it at some point, and, and uh, Moses and, and the other leader leaders also get tired of it at some point. Now, grumbling when times get tough, this is where I think these, these two teachings on patience and grumbling do connect. Grumbling when times get tough is virtually the opposite of being patient in, in the midst of suffering. It is in seasons of uncertainty and hardships and suffering that we would ideally choose to show patience and long-suffering and perseverance. 
And yet it is in those same seasons that we are obviously most prone to grumble. And so I, I see James providing the people, you know, two options. Which, which one are you going to do? When times are tough, you can uh, turn to God and put hope in his future coming that he will come and redeem your suffering. Or in the midst of your suffering, you can just grumble against one another and complain and, and, and uh, cry out to God in, in anger. So if we are patient, James says, we can rejoice that the Lord's coming is near. And yet if we grumble, uh, I'll let you reread the end of verse nine for yourself. Uh, but, I, but I think James has a different attitude towards those two different attitudes, one of patience, one of grumbling. Uh, let's move to verse uh, 12. Uh, last verse here we'll cover. Uh, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to do, uh, all you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. So verse 12 seems to have nothing to do with uh, with what comes before or after it. Next week, we're going to be talking about prayer. Uh, so this doesn't really fit into verses 1 to 11. It doesn't really fit into the verses on prayer, except for that reference there at the end to condemnation. And yet he introduces this teaching by saying, uh, above all, uh, do not swear and, and use this type of speech. So I hear James saying, even more than all of those teachings about wealth and about patience and about grumbling, I want you to take this one very, very seriously. And his message is almost verbatim from the Sermon on the Mount. He encourages the Christians he's writing to, to, to demonstrate simple speech. Let their yes be yes and their no be no. That's what uh, Jesus says back in the Sermon on the Mount. Here he says, all you need to do, all you need to say is a simple yes or no. And James commands them along with this not to swear, uh, not to swear on, on uh, heaven or on earth or on anything else. And I'm, I'm wondering, I don't, maybe there's not a connection here, but I'm wondering if James is almost saying, you all are making oaths and you are swearing on futures that you cannot control at all. You have no clue what's going to happen in the future. And yet you're saying, I swear on this reality or I swear on this reality. And he's trying to say, you can't control any of that. You don't know if any of that's going to happen. What you can know is that the Lord will judge you. Uh, and, and maybe that's, I'm putting too much together there, but that's what I hear him saying. He's saying, Christians, use simple speech. Be, when you say something, let people know what you mean um, and, and let there not be a lack of, of clarity as, as we speak. So this entire passage, uh, just trying to piece together what James is saying and how it connects, I think it's a really difficult passage to wrestle with and understand. And then, of course, it's, it's even a more difficult passage to apply. Uh, so what I, I want to do is, is kind of put those four topics to the side. They're important. We've discussed them now. And, and I want to return our focus to, again, what I think is James's actual underlying focus here, which is his conviction that Jesus Christ will return again in the future, maybe in the near future, to judge the living and the dead. I would say that uh, this is me sharing maybe more openly than I, I should, but I would say that I, I have experienced uh, significant doubt uh, in, in two major areas of the Christian faith. I have sort of the last 15 years of my life uh, in view here. Significant doubt in two major areas of the Christian faith. I've never really struggled with God's existence. Never really struggled with God, God's creation of us or of the world. I've never struggled with believing in the de life, death, resurrection of Jesus. 
But there have been two areas or, or tenets of the historic Christian faith that did not come easily to me, that I've had to really wrestle with and, and work through some, some obstacles, intellectual and emotional. Uh, the first one of those is, is not necessarily relevant, but I'm just sharing. Uh, the first one of those was the disunity of the church. This was a major, major issue that I, I had to work through. If Jesus' own body was broken to establish the one unified body of, of Christ, then why does the church seem to be broken into so many pieces? That's, that's a question that challenged my faith early on, and that's still a question that I, I really struggle with uh, as I wrestle with what I see in the New Testament and what Christ calls the church to be in the reality of, of what the church is today. But the second doubt, you probably guessed, or else this would all be irrelevant, uh, the, the second doubt that I have had to process over the years in my faith has been the second coming of Jesus. And more specifically, the source of, of my doubt was statements from New Testament writers that indicated they believed Jesus was coming back very soon. We see this repeatedly in Paul, like in the Thessalonian later letters, and we see it multiple times in this passage that we just worked through, where James provides very urgent teachings based in his conviction that they are living in the last days and that the Lord's coming is near and that they can expect Jesus to be back soon. Uh, and and they, they couch his return in very short-term uh, language. So here was my, my struggle. Here, here was my doubt that I've had to work through. If the first century Christians, like James, thought that Jesus' second coming would happen soon, then why are we still waiting for it 2,000 years later? And I'm just trying to be honest and frank with you all this morning. Some of you will hate me for this. Some of you will hopefully appreciate it. I'm just trying to be honest. Why are we still waiting for something 2,000 years later that the early Christians seemed to, to think would, would happen soon? If it was going to happen, shouldn't it have happened by now? And this was a major source of, of doubt for me. Without going into too much detail about how I, I sort of worked through this, I was able to emerge from that season of doubt by realizing that I was asking a question that God's people have asked of him throughout the ages. And it is the question, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Abraham and Sarah asked God that question, how long, O Lord? And Moses and the Israelites asked God that question, how long, O Lord? If you've been in our study of the judges, I can imagine the people experiencing all the chaos that we've looked at in the book of Judges. They are crying out in their own way. They're saying, how long, O oh Lord, are we going to have to put up with all of this? And then David in Psalm 13 literally is the one who voiced that question in those terms. And he cries out to God and he asks God, he says, how long, O oh Lord? The prophets, we're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks in our next series. The prophets, while they waited, not for the second coming of Jesus, but for the first coming of Jesus. While they awaited the Messiah for many, many centuries, they had to ask their God the same question, how long, O Lord? The people of God have always asked God that very question, how long, O Lord? And it's my conviction today, standing on the other side of my doubt, that God has repeatedly demonstrated his sovereignty over history and he is repeatedly proving that, proven that his timing is perfect. 
And so I have grown comfortable with asking of God the question, how long, O Lord? And yet I also choose to believe. I, I, I choose to trust. I choose to put faith in. I choose to hope in things unseen as Christians have for 21 centuries now, that Jesus Christ will indeed come again. And in the meantime, I choose to trust and obey that God's will for my life, in the meantime, while I wait and while we wait for Christ to return, we choose to trust and obey God's will for our lives, doing all that we can to be ready for that day when Jesus does come again to judge the living and the dead. And so in these last days, church, James was calling the first, the first century the last days, and I, I think it's appropriate that we again just say, in these last days, church, may we at Lafayette love and serve and stand up for the poor in our midst. May we be defined by generosity, as Dale put before us. May we not hoard or be corrupted or be corroded by our wealth, but may we be diligent in our generosity and in our sharing. And in so doing, we are preparing for the coming of the Lord. And in these last days, may we at Lafayette patiently wait for the Lord in the midst of our suffering. And may we eagerly anticipate that day as good news, as the day when Christ will come and redeem the sufferings that we face. And in these Last days, may we at Lafayette refuse to grumble against one another, however tempting and justifiable. And in these last days, may we at Lafayette use simple, straightforward, and trustworthy speech. May we not swear on things we can't control, but may our yes be yes and our no be no. And in living our lives in such ways and in all these other things that James has addressed in the book of James, it's very hard, challenging teachings that have kept me uh, up late at night wrestling with them. As we live our lives in these ways, we are ready to proclaim with hopeful and joyful anticipation, come Lord Jesus, come. That's the cry of Christians who firmly believe, even through seasons of doubt, that firmly believe Jesus is coming soon, and that informs the way I choose to live my life today. And I believe that. I can tell you with full honesty that I believe that message. And if I didn't, I don't even know what I would really do with my life. I don't, I don't know how I would process it. But because I believe that, it informs the way I want to live my life and the way I handle my money, the way I wait patiently, the way I treat other people. It informs everything I do. And I hope that that's the case for you as well. We look forward to the day that Jesus will come again. And until we do, we live a certain way in the present moment. Jim and Kathy will be back in the prayer room. Let's stand and sing.